He has seen the issues and excesses of big tech from the inside, and now he talks about them from the outside. David Auerbach worked as a software engineer for Microsoft and Google during the crucial early years of the internet, even being credited for bringing the first emoji to the world, and has seen how tech execs think about the tools that shape our lives. His new book, Meganets, warns us about the loose grip these individuals have on the powerful technologies and algorithms they've created, and it explores how these systems have driven us further and further into the opinions we already held, into our own little narrative bunkers. Here he diagnoses the effects of this on society, and tries to offer solutions, which are not easy to find. I'm Chris Stokel-Walker, and for Human Rights Organization Article 19, this is Tectonic. David Auerbach, welcome to Tectonic. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. You have this unique perspective, having worked long within the tech industry and then kind of outside of it. And your new book introduces us, warns us about this idea of meganets. Um, Can you maybe explain to our, our listeners what you envisage a meganet as being and how they work and what impact they have on our online interactions and the spread of information? Yeah, I think one of the questions that helps answer that is why why a new word? And the reason why I felt that I needed a new term was because we aren't fundamentally understanding how computer networks function in today's world. Um, And we think of them too much in the sense of, I think, traditional software and algorithms when what we're actually dealing with is these really feedback-driven systems that work both through the operations of you know, hundreds of millions of always online servers and hundreds of millions of always online people. And it's the interaction of these two components, the human element is critical for this because it's the collective mass of humanity operating on these systems that has made them so unpredictable and out of control. So we've gotten to this point where we have systems, you know, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, or cryptocurrency, you name it, um, where even the people who administer them and operate them do not have the control that we think of them as having. And that that, in fact, is really the underlying source of so many seemingly disparate problems. Um, And also why it seems that we're forever being disappointed or annoyed with technology behaving in ways that uh, we think are just like, well, why doesn't someone fix this? (laughs) Uh, Because it does seem that we put up with things from our technological networks that it doesn't seem that anybody would want or that anybody should humanly have to tolerate. (laughs) And the question is, how have we lost this control? And the answer, again, is that it's around this idea of a meganet, which is that these systems are constantly evolving and modifying themselves without anyone really controlling them. Things are happening too fast for any sort of manager or adjudicator to actually uh, control what they're doing. And I think that loss of control is, it's counterintuitive because I think we aren't quite ready to accept that our online experiences are being shaped in such 
a chaotic and uncontrollable way in the same way that we experience weather or in the same way that stock prices can shoot up or go down. But that that actually is a much closer version of what's going on than what we think of as sort of classical algorithms that take inputs and outputs. And that increasingly this loss of control is going to be the norm because of the size of these systems and the speed of them. And that's really interesting. I mean, is it is the original sin there that the people behind this, the companies behind these kind of mega nets, simply didn't account for the humans or that they didn't account for the growth of the humans? So I, I was there. I, you know, I was I was a server engineer at Microsoft and Google for many years. MSN Messenger. With emoticons in your instant messages, you can express your feelings. At the beginning of the internet era, the social media era. And I would say that what we constantly underestimated, it was very natural for, for companies to think of their customers, consumers, and users as more or less passive or controllable uh, entities, that they were going to interact with the systems in certain ways. And you know, they were being given a product, they were being sold a product, they were being shown ads, anything like that. But as the internet evolved, and as in particular social media took off, increasingly what was being shown to users was in fact data that was being provided by the users. And so this feedback loop got set up. And I don't think any of us anticipated that that feedback loop would become far more autonomous and uncontrolled than it certainly it was at the time. That in, in a way you would have a cycle of users interacting with the system and causing the system to adjust its own weights and filters and whatever without any direct interference. The system was set up, but it was also set up to be self-modifying. And I don't think we realize that at the point where you get to the certain size of like a Facebook, there's no way you can actually control it at a micro level. You can control it at a macro level to some extent, but there's simply more data than you can possibly filter. And it was so foreign, I think, to a software engineer mindset, because we always thought of it as, okay, well, we're controlling what's coming in, we're controlling what's being done with it, controlling what's being put out of it that we did not imagine that the algorithms would eventually get out of our control at that fine-grained level. And that's fascinating because I I will fully admit to being a tech skeptic, tech reporter here, and I'm also uh, an English literature grad and a humanities student at heart. Me too. So Yeah. Is this then kind of an example of people trying to code human-facing interactions without really realizing the humans are in the loop here then? That's a very good question. <laughs> because there was, I think, the overall thought that it could be kept simple, that these networks, even though they were dealing with the complexities of human life, would not have to actually have to have an understanding of them, but could simply give people you know, what they wanted. You know, the, the metric of uh, what a social network or something to provide is engagement. So give people what they want, figure out what they want. And I don't think we anticipated that, well, oh, sometimes giving people what they want is not always a good thing. <laughs> uh, people aren't always the best judge of what they want. And sometimes what your behavior shows that you want isn't even what you would say that you want <laughs> on further reflection. But 
because companies didn't want to be in the business of arbitrating, okay, well, we think people should see this or should see that. And it's like, okay, we give people whatever it is that they tend to click on the most. <laughs> and what happens is that you get this devolution of control so that everyone gains a small amount of influence over how these systems are behaving. You know, that when you go onto Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, your interactions, what you click on, do have a small effect on how other people experience the system. Obviously, if you post something, that changes their experience. But also, what you click on, what you like, is just raising and lowering popularities of things. And all of that is done automatically. The companies aren't dealing with that. But as you give up that small amount of control to every single user, it does gradually remove that control from the companies themselves. And I don't think there was an acknowledgement that that was even happening. You know, I worked on Google's search engine, and certainly the information that was being processed, well, we, there was way too much for the humans at Google to understand. And in those days, you know, there wasn't even an illusion that there was some AI that could... Mm understand them or fix it now i mean i think once again ai is getting billed as okay it can understand as well not really although it's doing a better job pretending some of the time but there was this hope that okay from large amounts of data we can extract simple surface level features that allow computers to organize it in ways that are helpful to humans for example, keywords. That was that was Google's great innovation, that if you're searching on a keyword, well, you know, you probably want to see ads based on that keyword. Great. Simple and generalized is great. The problem is, though, once you go beyond that, once you get into more abstract ideas like hobbies and interests and friends, then it's not just a matter of extracting one kind of surface level detail. You're actually trying to you're trying to abstract much more complex concepts, which the computers have really no idea of, of their nature. They're doing this heuristic stuff. And obviously the companies themselves can't manually do it. There's not enough human labor in the world, even if you outsource it, although they've tried to do that. You know, when as far as moderation goes, you have outsourced workers looking at the, the content that comes into these servers and judging, okay, this crosses the line, this doesn't cross the line. And even that seems beyond what, what they're capable of achieving, since tons of stuff that you wouldn't think should get out there can be, you can see on any network all the time. And at the same time, you see people getting banned for ridiculous things that, that seem completely innocuous. Yeah, and I mean, I've encountered firsthand as a reporter where lots of folks will get caught up in content moderation decisions that they end up on the wrong side of and completely innocuously get banned for no mm. reason at all, that like get reversed when someone like me enters the space and a human does come into that and says your algorithm has misfired here. Yeah. What are the kind of real life consequences of that original sin of thinking we can just trust the code to do it itself and not realize the humans involved here? Well, uh, I mean, I think at this point there is, there is the understanding that, okay, humans are acting on it. And it causes, I think, a bifurcation going in two directions. One is there's this overwhelming sense that, okay, we've lost control, we need to crack down, we need to, you know, get rid of everything we don't like. 
and no matter what is done, you're angering you know someone or other. You know all the fuss about Twitter. Everybody seemed to think that Twitter was either censoring too much or not censoring enough. And then there were people who were like, Elon Musk will ruin it. Elon Musk will save it. And the issue is that those problems were there before Elon Musk took over, and those hmm. problems remain even now. So there's there's this urge to say, okay, just fix this, but there's not the acknowledgement that we're asking something impossible of them. So it creates a movement in the other direction of just sort of fatalism, like, okay, who cares? You know, there's nothing yeah. done about this. I've spoken to, for instance, folks at YouTube when they were concerned about kind of the radicalization that was going on there and the amplification that you mentioned of you know, social media acting almost like a funhouse mirror right. in, in this way, making these things worse. And they point out that the solution is almost impossible, right? Like, And that's the thing that I think that none of us seem to realize is their solution was we'll put another algorithm on it to try and fight this algorithm and see who wins. But are we now too far gone here? I think we really don't have technology that can moderate content mm. because AI is not at the level of understanding what people actually mean. So whatever broad mechanisms you have, if you're trying to moderate saying like, let's get rid of hateful or toxic content, we don't have automated tools that can detect that with any sufficient degree of accuracy. Um, and it's interesting because there was a scandal a couple of years ago when I think there was far-right Swedish propaganda on Facebook. And one of the internal Facebook memos said, limit the meme that we can't control our systems. It was almost as though they were okay with being thought of as evil capitalist profiteers, but they really <laughs> didn't want to be seen as not being able to. But unfortunately, I think that's much closer to being the case, that Facebook doesn't really have any interest in that stuff being out there. It's just that the challenge of moderating based on actual intent and content really is intractable. And I think that urge to control it at that level is actually masking that we can do some things to ameliorate the intensity by, well, getting back to what I said earlier about engagement. One of the problems is this notion of engagement is showing you more stuff like that you already like. Well, that's going to have an intrinsic radicalizing tendency, not through intent, but if you're showing people more of what they're already seeing, that's going to tend to reinforce whatever they believe. And what you're getting are what I call these like narrative bunkers of people who are very good at just like echoing each other and saying, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I'm right. And it prevents, and it actually, I think, is fractures a larger sense of community. And our systems, our mega nets are very good at bringing people together because it's grouping them like and like. Well, grouping like with like has unintended effects. <laughs> so rather than trying to filter out what particular bunkers or narratives we would like to eliminate, if you can actually just introduce more heterogeneity, I think you could actually like decongeal some of that. It's not the problem is, is that, you know, it's going to take time, it's going to take experimentation, it doesn't look like a targeted fix. But the problem is, is that for a targeted fix, you're forever closing the door after the horse is bolted from the barn by the time you fix one thing. There was a study showing that basically within a couple months of COVID-19, everybody's opinions were pretty much set in stone. And no matter what they did as far as like trying to correct misinformation or put out information or convince people this or that, no one really moved. Um, and, and I think that's because you now have these forces that are saying like, well, look, 
I don't care about newspapers and politicians. I now have an online group that will back up the things I already believe. And that's much more powerful than any sort of mass media force like that we were used to in the 20th century. And those narrative bunkers are concerning because they cause January the 6th insurrection. As key evidence against them. The social media aspect of it is like nothing I've ever seen. We've we've been using social media a lot on crimes um, in the past, you know, probably 10 years. But with this particular event, uh, there's so much. And we appreciate the defendants using social media because it's very helpful. They cause COVID denialism. They cause polarization, extremism arguments around the world, sometimes literally mobs and things like that. I mean, and some of them are innocuous, you know, bronies. Well, maybe mm. bronies aren't innocuous, but <laughs> you know, there are a lot of niche interests where if you had grown up 50 years ago, you would say, oh, I'm the only one who's into this crazy mm. stuff and you would hide it. Well, no, now you can find no matter how crazy your interest is, you can find people who will agree with you and back it, whether it's innocuous or not. So the question is, you can't get into the business of deciding which ones are harmful and which ones aren't, in part because you're not going to be able to tell ahead of time. You know, a lot of these things are going to be actually will peter out without amounting to anything. Um, but what you can do is if you have a more non-targeted, soft sort of mechanism by which you're encouraging heterogeneity, you're deprioritizing the loudest voices, raising up the quieter voices, and just in effect, doing things to break up the existing tendencies that these meganets have that have been driven by sort of apathy towards, okay, what are the structural factors at work here? Which is what I think you have to be paying attention to. Don't look at like the sociological considerations of it because people are just going to be people. You're not going to be able to like guilt trip people into behaving nicely and make the internet a better place. Mm. But I think that that's, that seems to be what a lot of people want to do. Or you're not going to be able to fine or regulate these companies into uh, doing what we'd like them to do because they actually don't have that power. And so how do you do it then? Because you worked at Microsoft, you worked at Google. Mm -hmm. If a boss had come to you at Google and said, we want you to introduce friction into the Google search results so that you weren't served disinformation, that impacts on the bottom line, right? Um, Oh, that, that's a that's a tricky question you're asking. There's a lot of there's a lot of. So well, I asked it. Disin, disinformation. Well, that's the thing. Is that the first thing I would say is, okay, tell me what's di classify everything we've got as disinformation and not disinformation, mm. and that's going to be a problem right there. Even figuring out what's disinformation is, I think, above what we have the capacity to do. I mean, you can catch specific types, but more information is generated every day. And as anyone can see, there's plenty of misinformation and disinformation that come through very official channels as well. You know, there was a period in which everybody was being told masks don't work against COVID. Hmm. So during that time, it was disinformation to say that masks were good. <laughs> and then that switched around. So I think if someone had come to me, I would have said, okay, look, this disinformation thing, that's really tricky. Now, as far as just introducing more heterogeneity, yeah, you can do that structurally. It's just that you have to look at it from a non-content perspective. If you're really trying to get at it on the level of, okay, I'm going to qualitatively identify good 
and bad content on the web, that's when you're really like falling into the mega net trap because we don't have systems that allow you to make those sorts of discrimination. And even if even if you have such a discrimination, training AIs on that distinction won't make them accurate enough. But it is it's too hard to close the door after the horse has bolted an excuse. Well, no, no. I mean, you can close the door after the horse has bolted. The problem is the horse is out there. So how do we get them back in? I Because this is the argument, I guess, because I speak to tech companies a lot who kind of go, well, what do you expect us to do? This is an intractable mm-hmm. problem. This is a difficult problem. And they always seem to ignore the fact that they made the problem That's right. in some ways. Yeah. yeah, well, so this is a societal question. I mean, on a certain level, you know, you could look, you can ban the whole thing. So that you can definitely do. <laughs> My point is less, I think, to advocate for a particular regulatory solution more to just make things realistic. That when they say they can't do it, they're not they're not making an excuse. They're saying the truth. That doesn't put them off the hook. They're still making money off of it. They can still be held accountable for it. It's just to say that that's why you get these narratives going where tech companies, you know, are hesitant to say that they don't have the control over that. And they do this two-step of like, okay, we're on it. But then the next day say like, oh, we couldn't do it. Yeah. So yeah, there's definitely disingenuousness there. And the point of this is not to, to defend them. It's more to say that clearly for years now we've been, what we've been doing hasn't been working. We complain, they try to do something, it doesn't work, and the cycle just repeats. There have been things that have been somewhat more promising. One, there was an ex-Facebook person who said that these non-targeted means do actually have some effect. Like when when Facebook banned all political advertising in the run-up to the 2020 election. Why is that to stop the spread of fake news all across the board? Twitter saying that they're gonna ban all political ads. And then the latest two today is Google. Well, that definitely had an effect. Mm -hmm. That you can do. They weren't going to be in the business of banning only the bad political advertising or the misleading political advertising. That's not workable. But banning all political advertisements, yeah, that's doable. Um, You can set up structural forces that do mitigate these tendencies. The danger is if you're looking to, okay, let's only bolt the bad horse doors before the bad horses escape. Identifying the bad horses ahead of time, that's not going to happen. But TikTok, I think, in order to discourage uh, the spread of pro-anorexia videos, I think softened their recommendation algorithm so that they weren't recommending quite such homogeneous content. That's the sort of thing that you can ask these companies to do and that they can actually achieve. So that is the sort of ask that I think is reasonable. But the asks usually come in the form of, oh, this particular type of content, get rid of it. And if you're doing it on a case-by-case basis, it's going to be a non-starter. You're just always going to be overwhelmed and you're always going to be fighting the last war. Yeah, and you find one issue, one sort of set of problematic content, they get rid of that, but then another one crops up. Well, it's gotten to the point where, yeah, you know, you don't even, you know, companies can say, well, people will have forgotten about this by next week, you know? which is a terrible place to be, right? This is, I mean, this is a consequence just of informational abundance more general. This is a very, very societal issue, which is that we've gone from a realm of informational scarcity where there was such a high bar to 
publishing anything to a large audience to a environment in which there is now almost no bar to publishing a piece of information to a large audience. And that shift, that's a societal problem. That is going to exist no matter who is in charge of these channels. The very ability for there to be huge amounts of information broadcast from any individual to hundreds of millions of other people, that is something we are still coming to terms with. And no matter what form these networks take, these meganets take, we are going to be dealing with the consequences of now being in an informational abundant society instead of a scarcity one. It's a curious one for listeners of Article 19, maybe who you know, focus often on freedom of expression and uh, the tamping down of it to think of an abundance of freedom of expression as a problem. Well, it's interesting because a lot of the complaints you see now do not take the form of you know, I'm not being legally punished for my expression. What's happening is I'm being deranked or I'm not being allowed to say it on this particular platform. And is, is blaming, because I often hear that with creators that I speak to, they talk about being shadow banned. It turns out I have a situation going on right now on Twitter where I'm shadow banned. I totally got shadow banned on Instagram. For example, when people try to type my name into the search box on Instagram, my account does not show up. I'm also getting a lot of reports from people who are trying to at me, at my name, and they're getting a warning that says this account has posted false information. Obviously, they're not providing us or whoever's trying to post this examples of what this misinformation is. Or they talk about um, displeasing the algorithm as if it's this kind of voodoo god. By framing it in that way, by saying the algorithm is to blame rather than the company. Well, shadow bans are often done manually by humans. Yeah. Uh, so there are different aspects of it. Sometimes a lot of this stuff is hidden, but it's actually being done by an, a human administrator. But by thinking that, even if it is done by mm -hmm. humans, by thinking that it is a coding problem, are we somehow kind of shifting the window of responsibility here away from those responsible? Well, I think part of it is that we don't know who is responsible. There's no transparency at all, and certainly greater transparency would help. Part of the problem, the very nature of the word shadow ban is, oh, okay, you don't even know that you've been banned. You don't know what a lot of these companies think of you or are doing to you. The issue on the other side, though, is that these companies have so many users, frequently they aren't aware of what's happened to a particular user at all. So there's two cases. There's one in which, okay, yeah, there was a case of, of a direct targeting of a particular type of content in response to some explicit action. Mm -hmm. And there's another where it was an emergent factor of this, these spaghetti code algorithms that are constantly changing, that you don't even know if it'll be the same the next time you use it, in which case it's like, well, the companies themselves don't know. And both of those are an issue. The first one is more addressable because you can say, okay, when there's a human decision, we can examine it. And simply by having humans in the loop, there can't be that many human level decisions. Mm. When it's algorithm driven, when you have issues like, oh, okay, the algorithm seems to have had some emergent bias, despite no explicit bias being coded into the algorithm. At that point, we need to build watchmen to watch the watchmen who watch the watchmen. It's a, just a, it's a cyclical problem that there's no way to ever uh, verify that what you've built doesn't have the problem that you're talking about. And it doesn't matter if these are in the hands of the government or in private corporations, or even in some sort of uh, deregulated disparate ownership, like some kind of federated 
uh, network. These problems are still going to exist. Um, you know, think of it, there's no central provider of email and yet spam is all over the place. Who is to blame for spam? Well, spam is sort of a consequence of how the overall system is architected. And so if the tech companies, the infrastructure and the way that we set it up and the users are kind of all equally shouldering blame or responsibility for this and there's no real way of us getting through this, what does the future look like? Well, I think we can soften the impact somewhat. I do think the things that I've talked about when you're looking at, okay, means of basically changing the underlying structural forces within these systems, not to target specific types of content, but to do things like break up these narrative bunkers, introduce more heterogeneity of content, you can soften it. So I think there are ways that you can introduce structural forces that work against the sorts of problems we've been talking about. It's just that it's no longer the game of whack-a-mole where you point at the bad thing and say, get rid of it. It's more that, okay, you have to take a longer term view and say, okay, we're going to try to do this in the hopes that over time it will lessen the factors. But, you know, humans prefer all or nothing type thinking, so it's not as appealing, obviously. It's just, I think this is the only way you can actually actually have some beneficial effect because as we talked about, the problem is too large to deal with on a case-by-case basis. More broadly speaking, though, I do think we are facing a new new types of human organization in which a lot of what's going to be happening will be happening um, in the form of decentralized groups of people who organize together. And I mean, one of the recent things that I point to as sort of representative of this is you see Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg are going to have cage fight or something. Mm. This is a tweet from Elon Musk earlier on today saying that uh, the Zuck Musk fight will be live streamed on X, his platform there, and on also Mark Zuckerberg's new platform. He responds to this post saying, I am ready. I suggested August 26th when he first challenged, but he hasn't confirmed not holding my breath. So certainly and potentially... I, I think of this and it's like... <laughs> what is going on here right can you imagine like carnegie and rockefeller going at it or disraeli and pitt the younger i don't know if for the british version but, <laughs> you know that there's a certain nature is that the ostensible leaders and those in control do not have anywhere near the control that the old power brokers and robber barons had because the collective masses of humanity are actually exerting more influence on their systems than has ever been possible before because their systems run on processing of of human activity. So what you're looking at weirdly is this sort of subtle populism rising up where you're seeing masses, disconnected masses of humans more able to act as unified groups because they're being brought together electronically by meganets. Um, And that leads to things like Zuckerberg and Musk in a cage fight so that, you know, their supposed users are going to be watching them. It's a strange, and it's not to put them off the hook, but it is to remark that they aren't quite the unchecked elites of yore. I mean, there's a great headline many years ago around the time of Brexit where someone in foreign policy wrote, oh, it's time for the elites to rise up against the ignorant masses. 
I mean, at the point where you have to write an article like that and publish it, you've already lost. Indeed, it's really interesting. David Auerbach, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Tectonic, a new podcast from Article 19. We hope you'll join us for future episodes, which we'll be releasing every fortnight and looking at the wide variety of ways that the seismic shifts we're currently seeing in technology can affect our freedom of expression. I'm Chris Stokelwalker. Your producers this episode were Christopher Hooten and Nicola Kelly, with theme music and original score by Julian Wharton. Thank you, and see you next time.